The reading today is taken from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. This can be found on page 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your kingdom would come that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in St. Swithin's as it is in heaven, in Walcott as it is in heaven, in Bath as it is in heaven, and in your world. Amen. I wonder whether anybody this morning um, was told by their parents that if you crack your knuckles that you'll get arthritis. I wonder whether anybody, anybody crack their knuckles regularly? Anybody want to do a demonstration? Tom, do you want to do a demonstration at the back? Yeah, crack knuckles. Actually, lots of studies have been done. There is no link between arthritis and cracking your knuckles. Actually, what it is, it's the pocket of air in the joint that actually happens when you do that. How about this? If you go outside, wear a hat. You lose over 50% of your body heat from uh, unless you wear a hat. If that was the case, most of us would be wandering around in our swimming costumes outside just with a hat on, not worried about the cold. Actually, studies look and say about 10% of your body heat goes from your head. It's good to wear a hat, but actually it's not going to keep you warm on a cold winter's day. Or what about eating carrots? Proves your eyesight, doesn't it? Anybody agree with that one? Yeah, eating carrots improves your eyesight. It's true. We know it's true, obviously. Apple a day? Has it kept the doctor away? No, so some of our more kind of mature and wise members of the church this morning. Now, now some of these myths may seem frivolous, but they are myths. But there are other myths. There are other things that you believe about yourself or believe about others and believe about the world that actually 
can destroy your relationships with one another. They can destroy your relationships with God and actually destroy your own personal integrity, your personal ethics because of what you think and what you believe. The New Testament states repeatedly that Jesus Christ, God's Son, entered the world to restore his rightful godly rule and reign over this world, God's kingdom. A few weeks ago, we looked at how God's kingdom is always opposed by God's enemy, Satan, the devil. And that this life and this world, you may have a vision of this life and world that's like an extended beach vacation. But what Scripture says is that's not a true picture of the world, that we live in a war zone. And today, of all days, is a day when we can make sense of that in a different way. And one of the weapons that Satan uses, as we see through Scripture, is that of lies to oppose God's kingdom. For he is a liar, John 8 says, and the father of lies. Satan seeks to sow seeds of lies about our future. You have no future with God. You're not saved. It doesn't matter what you believe. Lies about the past. You know, I've done too many bad things in my life. I've constantly failed for me to be loved by God. Or about your present. It can't be wrong if, nobody else is, if everybody else is doing it. If it doesn't harm anyone, it must be fine doing what I'm doing. Today we're looking, we're continuing our series on the kingdom of God. And both this week and next week, we're going to look at this passage. And I'm going to take a particular stance this week, and then we're going to look in more detail next week. The Bible asserts that there is a war going on. There is an, an evil force in the world that isn't just about human frailty, isn't just about sin or stupidity. But there's a power that's at work seeking to stop us thriving, seeking to prevent us growing into the people God's called us to be, into the communities God's called us to be. I know in most elite circles, if I said this and I was in the town or I was invited into one of your businesses or wherever you work or the people you're friendly with, Many people today would consider that to be an absurd claim. Imagine you said that at your work, for example. They'd say, oh, come on, don't be serious. We've moved out of the dark ages. They used to believe that stuff in the dark age. We don't believe that now, do we? Of course we don't. I mean, look at the internet. Look at what the kind of age we're just a world away from what they used to believe hundreds of years ago. And of course, one of the things you do is you say, well, let's look the internet, for example. What do we see amongst the many things? Do we see cyberbullying? Do we see trolling? Do we see voyeurism? Do we see all the dark sites? Well, as a Christian, I've grown up in a Christian home and I've always had a sense and a, a, an understanding and a belief in the reality of evil. Actually, through my life, nothing that I've experienced, whether it's working in the NHS and going to some of the secure mental health units, it's working in prisons, or working in other parts, has, has actually shattered my belief that what the Bible says about evil and truth is true. There's a reality to it. And whether you accept that, or whether this morning you're thinking, I've read, I'm, Tim, I'm not sure. For me, I think that's what Scripture says, and Scripture does say, but also I see our human experience points to that again and again. There is a war going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, that's what Scripture attests to us this morning. 
And personally, I'm actually convinced that one of the biggest causes of Christian fruitlessness is a lie that if you become a Christian, to be honest, everything is going to be fine. You know, everything will go well for me, everything will go well for my family, everything will, will go well in my work, my relationships, everything will fine, my kids will have no problems, my grandkids will have no problems, everything will prosper, everything will do well. Ephesians 6, that we're looking at this morning, Paul's words is bracing truth, if that's what you believe this morning. Paul calls us back to the real world rather than the fantasy world that we're tempted to put ourselves in, in which there is a war going on. So if you buy into that, if you buy into that idea, how do we deal with that? Here is, how do we deal with the reality of that? And firstly, we, we, essentially this morning, I'm just encouraging you to do one thing. It's to stand. To stand. We're called to stand. Now, one of the things you're looking at when you look at the Scriptures, if you spend time reading the Scriptures and trying to understand what's at the heart of a passage, what's at the center of a passage, is to look at the repeated words that you find in that passage. And those of you who are, uh, um, take notice of words and look at it very carefully will see that the word stand is mentioned four times in the five verses, in verses 11, verse 13, and verse 14 of Ephesians 6. What Paul is trying to communicate to his readers is this. Stand. Take a stand. Stand. An essential prerequisite to living the life God's called you to or doing battle against the lies of the enemy is just to stand. You'll notice that this word stand is used in this passage of Scripture. There's a very well-known Christian um, Chinese Christian called Watchman Nee, and he's written uh, a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And one of the ways he breaks up the book of Ephesians and he looks at Ephesians, he says is this, he said, if you read the book of Ephesians, which we read from this morning, verses uh, 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, is also about sitting. It's about sitting, it's about seated with Christ, our position as the righteous, chosen, saved people of God. We're called to sit with Christ and to know our position in Christ. Chapters 4 to 5 is about walking with Christ. We're called to live the Christian life. We're called to live out what God's called us to, based on the position as a people who are righteous and saved by God of love. Then we get to this bit in Ephesians 6, and particularly from verse 10 onwards that we're looking at this morning, and the exhortation is to stand. It talks about standing and learning to take a stand. Now, what I want to say today is about standing, of learning to hold your God-given ground that God has given you, that actually we're called to hold our ground, not being running away, not being pushed away, but to hold the ground God has called you to. Standing is critical to the Christian life. James 4 verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Paul uses the word stand, which is precisely many, many of you will know, and many of you will live the Christian life far longer than I have. But it's actually the opposite of what often we do. 
we retreat, we run away, we give ground, we give up, we compromise, we waffle, we go for the escape hatch, we rationalize, we roll over, we try to mix God's will with Satan's will, what he's suggesting, we try to be tempted, we do everything other than stand, to simply stand. You say, well, what does that look like to stand? What, what are you saying to me? And I just want to look at a few things this morning before we move on. I want to look at it firstly negatively um, and say standing means we don't retreat. Standing means we don't retreat. You know, the world is full of people who retreat in the face of opposition. And when I think about retreating, I think of a number of escape hatches the world offers to us all the time. In our generation, particularly in this generation, our lives are so full of choices. We have so many choices about so many things. The option to retreat is really attractive, and it's there for us. What do I mean? So if work is challenging, just get a new job. If a relationship isn't working, get a new relationship. If church isn't working, just find a new church. Instead of standing where God has called you, we retreat. We run away. We run away from our work. We run away from the relationship. We run away from the things God's placed on our hearts that he's called us to. Well, we say, well, you know, when it doesn't work out, in our heads we say, well, now I'll, I'll commit to this a bit. And to be honest, if it doesn't work out, I can walk away. Sociologists uh, tell us there are two very different ways of doing relationships. One way, as most of you will know, is based on economic exchanges. The other way is based on covenant. An economic exchange relationship basically goes like this. It's what we do in business. So we shop at certain stores, we go to certain restaurants, and we do our business there. And as long as the price doesn't get too high and the quality doesn't get too low, then we will continue to go to those stores and go to that restaurant. But when the service is bad, when the meal is bad, or they start raising their prices, we go to another restaurant, we go to another shop. Economic exchange. Historically, it's how we do business relationships. It's all about costs and its benefits. If the benefits are high enough, I'll, I'll take the cost. Benefits not high enough, won't take the cost. Covenant was the way that people historically did relationships, personal relationships. Covenant relationship isn't about weighing the costs and the benefits. Covenant relationship says, I am unconditionally committed to you. And even if the relationship, in this relationship, the price gets really really high, really, really high, and the benefits get really, really low. I'm committed to you. It's God's covenant with us. Classic example, though, for us humanly is what we understand in Christian marriage. What do we say in the, in the marriage vows? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, and to cherish till death us do part. So even if, if you or I got dementia 
even if our looks failed even more than our looks might feel, we might feel as though our looks have failed this morning. Or someone way more attractive comes along in someone's work or someone's life than you. Nevertheless, I've entered a covenant relationship. I'm not weighing the, the benefits and the costs. I'm not going to run away. I'm in a marriage. That's how Christians have always understood marriage. Why is that the case? Because traditionally, Christians have believed that you, if you multiply covenant relationships, we end up with a better community, a better vision of the world. If you're a close personal circle, not just in marriage, but in other people, that we're committed to people based on love, not just on how much it costs us, your dearest friends, but actually by doing that, by basing our relationships on covenant with people, we'll have better lives and a better society. That's the biblical view this morning. And what's happened, as we all know this, I understand the fragility of relationships. Please don't think I'm hopefully sat in judgment on anybody this morning. But the reality is this, is that economic exchange thinking has infiltrated every area of our understanding of our relationships today. In that we look at it entirely about what we get as opposed to what we give. And I understand the cost, some of the cost. I don't understand everybody's situation. But pretty much in every pastoral conversation at some point, there comes a point where it says, you, you just have no idea, Tim, how hard my life is, how difficult things are. And at the back of the mind, I know I'm human, I understand the temptation. People are thinking, but I can always leave. Retreat. God calls us to stand this morning. Secondly, the enemy seeks to exaggerate failure, to encourage you to retreat. The enemy comes along when we're feeling tired, we're feeling overstretched, we're feeling alone. And he says to us, listen, he says, listen this morning, virtually everybody else is doing it. You don't need to take a stand. Give up. Don't be ridiculous. Look at our society. Everybody else is doing it. They don't seem to be having any more difficulties than we have. You know, everyone seems to be unhappy. And they just leave. Don't worry. Leave what you're called to. Leave your job. Leave your hobby. Leave your passion. Leave your, the person you're in relationship with. Jumping ship. It's fine. Don't worry. What we hear is the message. It's impossible to stand. You're on your own. You're on your own. Why hold out? That's what the enemy said to the prophet Elijah 2,900 years ago. You're all alone in your fight with the king of Ahab, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. No one is left, Elijah. All the other people, all the other prophets are being killed. Elijah, you're on your own. Give up. Everyone else has. Why hold on? And to strengthen our resolve so that we don't retreat, the Lord says to his prophet Elijah and says, Elijah, this morning you are not alone. You are not alone. There are many as well who are taking a stand across this world with you. Don't retreat. Fear not. You see, the enemy's tactics to exaggerate failure and to normalize it and say, you know, it's going to be fine. 
Most marriages end up in divorce, we think. That's all we hear. Every teenager is having sex everywhere. People are promiscuous, so it doesn't matter what you do. My children have no chance of being a Christian later on in their lives, and we believe it. My church will never flourish like other people's churches. God has given up on me. I'm too old. I'm not gifted like I used to be. Time's running out. I'm not worth anything. My husband or my wife will never change. Why do we as Christians embrace those stories, those bad news of truth? Why do we find that as Christians we're consumed with that? Not everybody gives in. Not everybody has an affair. Not everybody cheats on their expenses. Not everybody cheats in an exam. Not every teen is using drugs. Not every parent is, is failing. Not every person is walking away from Christ. This morning, I wanted to remind us again of this. The Christian story does not stop at Genesis 3 with a fall. The Christian story does not stop. If you think I'm exaggerating, I'm saying the Christian story does not stop at the cross. There's a resurrection. There's an ascension. There's a giving of the Spirit. God calls us to live the whole story. Jesus was resurrected, ascended, and sent his life-giving Spirit to, to be with us. We are not alone. Fear not. Stand on the whole truth. The enemy's tactics is to exaggerate failure and to ask you to join in with them. Then lastly, the third bit is compromise. Compromise may be a good thing in politics. It may be I spend a lot of time in doing business-type deals. It's seen as a good thing in business as well. It's better to have something after all than nothing. But compromise isn't good for your personal ethics, your moral principles, how we decide what's right and what's wrong, and how we live. Joyce Meyer, the Christian writer, said this. She said, compromise means to go just a little bit below what you know is right. It's just a little bit. But it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. You don't need to completely lie. Just tell a bit of a lie. Just shade the truth. Hide the embarrassing facts. Don't cheat a, a lot. Cheat a little. That'd be fine. You don't have to cut all the corners. Just cut one or two. C.S. Lewis, the Christian author, and particularly if you like literary-type people, he wrote a wonderful book about spiritual warfare called The Screwtape Letters. And here is what Lewis said in that. He said, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, screw tape. People who stand don't compromise. They don't bend certain principles. They have conviction and stick with it. What does compromise look like? Just bow the knee to me, said Satan to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Just, just bow the knee to me, Satan said. Worship me. Your Father in heaven can't be trusted to be a good provider in your life. You know, God is not going to help you. You need my help to get to where you want to get to. You can't trust God to do good for you, provide the right person for you, right job for you, provide the right opportunities for you. Just bow the knee. 
and worship me. Those who stay strong say no and stand. I will not compromise. And this morning, one of my challenges to us is this on this Remembrance Sunday. There must be some points of resistance in each of our lives where we push back and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I am going to do this. By making a stand, we say, I'm going to prioritize making some time for God, making time for His church, making time to serve, making time to spend time in Scripture or to meet together to pray with someone or whatever it is. I've got to make a stand and I've got to put God first. Or it's actually making a stand against stuff that's coming at you that you know you just need to resist. I'm not going to cheat on my expenses. I won't badmouth people. The gospel is at stake. We draw lines. That's what conviction's about. And we say, yes, Lord, to what he's calling us to. Every one of us faced temptation this morning. Where is your line in the sand? Are there you need to draw? Or actually, you may be sat here this morning, you know you need to redraw a line that has got all over the place. You may know some lines in your head, but you know you're not living it. And you need to redraw a line in the sand this morning. This morning is a, more, a moment to say, Lord, this is what I'm committing to. I'm going to decide that I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to decide which side of the fence I'm upon. I'm going to decide choice by choice, step by step, left foot, right foot, day by day, to choose your kingdom, to choose to serve you, to make you the real king of my life. We have the opportunity to determine what kind of people and what kind of church we are to become. But we live in a war zone. Stand your ground this morning. Stand your ground. Let's pray.